This is Ahuka. Welcome to the next part of our discussion of the separation of presentation from content. In the last one, we took a look at what that means in the context of the web, which is where I first ran into the concept, frankly. And then I discovered that, in fact, it's a much broader concept, uh, and I want to talk about the, basically the same thing, but now from the standpoint of office software. Uh, okay, now what I'm talking about is just office software in general. So everything I'm going to say applies equally well whether you use Microsoft Office, WordPerfect Office, OpenOffice.org, LibreOffice, or indeed any Office productivity suite or word processor, presentation package, what have you. Uh, it, it's all the same because we're operating here at a more of a theoretical level of understanding how to use this stuff properly. Now, I have worked with all four of those office suites. Uh, and uh, in fact, I have trained people in several of them. And I have some experience of just how powerful these techniques can be once you start applying them in your day-to-day -day work. Uh, you know, back in my academic days, when I was at a certain small university, uh, I developed an 18-hour course for our college students. Now, these were older students. Uh, this is what we call a degree completion program. So, typically, people who had maybe two years of college and then had to stop for whatever reason, and now they're in their 40s, and they've discovered, oh, I'm never going to get anywhere with my career unless I finish my degree. And so we, we created a program specifically targeted for people like that. And as part of it, uh, we made the decision that they had to demonstrate a certain level of facility with computers and with all of the software that you typically use, which they could do by taking a test, or they could take the 18-hour class that I developed. Uh, well, you know, a lot of them either didn't want to take the test or were unable to pass the test for whatever reason. Um, so then they wound up taking my class. But for many of them, it was something that they didn't want to do, and they weren't able to see right away the point in doing it. You know, a lot of people were probably thinking, oh, you know, I use this stuff every day at work. Uh, what am I going to learn? But it was a requirement. So generally, towards the end of their program, it was, all right, I got to take this or I won't graduate. So they would take my class. And then something very interesting happened, because in almost every case, the reaction I got from them was, hey, why didn't you give me this stuff at the beginning? Because it was useful. 
you know. Uh, now, that's very gratifying if you're the one who devised the course, but it illustrates that what we're talking about are ways to do things better and smarter. Um, so, you know, this particular class that I created was covering the basics of Microsoft Office. So we were talking about Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Access. But I've used the same approach to training in other office suites. It's been equally successful because the principles here uh, really do apply. Now, the other thing that uh, happened, something happened to me earlier today that I think illustrates a, a useful point. Uh, I was on a web page and I clicked a link to a PDF file. There's nothing terribly unusual about that. File opened, I read it, and when I was done, I went, I clicked the close button on the upper right to get rid of the PDF file. I mean, I was done with it. Isn't that what you do? Ah! Okay, I had just closed my browser and all of the tabs that I had open. Now, side note, this is why the first thing I do with a new browser is I always set it up to open the tabs I last had opened. Because <laughs> I've done this before. Now, the point here, though, is that my browser automatically opened and displayed a PDF file. That used to require calling a separate program. Apparently, that is no longer necessary. I find that rather interesting. And, and I suspect we're going to see more of this. Uh, for instance, Google Docs is starting to bring all your Office documents into the browser. At, at some point, the technology is going to treat any piece of data, text, whatever, as raw material and display it. In other words, all of the Word documents, Excel spreadsheets or other spreadsheets, all of the presentations you make, what have you, in essence, are just going to become web pages. And when they become web pages, everything we said about web pages is going to apply with some equal force in constructing Office documents. Now, that's not all. Uh, in my day job, I, I'm a project manager. I have a need to manage large numbers of documents. Uh, in fact, documentation management is a real concern for me, and, and I'd have to say that most of the places I have worked do not do a good job of it. Now, there are some tools out there. Uh, I will say Microsoft SharePoint, if used properly, is probably a real good step in the right direction. There's also open source tools that are available. Uh, one of the best ones I know of is Alfresco. Uh, and I've put a link to that in the show notes, so you can take a look at that. Um, now, I, I tend to prefer open source solutions. If it were up to me, I would probably prefer Alfresco. On the other hand, in many of the places that I've worked professionally, and it's been a Microsoft shop. <laughs> so promoting an open source solution is not always possible, but if I can get them to use SharePoint, then I... They may go for that. And frankly, you know, it works very well with all of the Microsoft Office programs. And so it, it's a reasonable solution, okay? And uh, as, as much as I like open source, there are times you just have to be, be practical. But when you're doing this, again, whatever document management solution you have, you still have the issues of semantic encoding 
and finding the document you want, which is a needle in a very large haystack. And semantic encoding is a great way to help with that. Now, <clears throat> semantic encoding, as it applies in, in Office documents, a little bit different, not, not a terrible amount. I'm going to tell you another story from my academic days at that university. Uh, as I was the F expert on everything involving um, Office software, I was given the task of putting together the college catalog one year. Well, what that meant was I was combining a large number of documents, each one from a different department, into something that could be considered a unified whole. And these departments did not make the job easy. No two of them used the same convention for laying out their information, and as I recall, none of them used proper semantic tagging at all. Everything was done using font changes, the spacebar, inconsistent lists. If any of them used tabs, they did it the wrong way. So I, I had a situation where all of these documents were constructed with assumed visual cues, but they couldn't even agree on what those visual cues were. Elements were used inconsistently and improperly. I had a mess. So the first thing I did was go through each of these submissions and put in the semantic encoding to tag these things. Now, in word processing programs, this is done by using what are called styles. And when I use the word style, you might think, oh, style, style sheets. Yeah, there's a correspondence. They're basically the same idea, just applied in different domains. So, the proper way to use a word processing program, and again, this applies to Microsoft Word, WordPerfect, LibreOffice Write, Abbey Word, any word processing program out there, the proper way to do that is apply a style to each element just the way you apply a tag in a web page. So when we talked about web pages, we said uh, the title of a web page should always be an H1 tag. The equivalent in word processing, the title of your document should be given a header one. Major subsections of a web page, we said that gets an H2 tag major subsections of a word processing document. That should be called a header two. Now, a word processing program may take you in the wrong direction at first because they will have an appearance already assigned or they'll ask you to specify an appearance when you use the style. You must resist the urge the point in creating your document should be to get the semantic encoding done correctly. Once that is done, you can assign an appearance to each element and achieve a unified look and feel to your document or even to a whole group of documents. Another illustration. Uh, you know, in my academic days, you know, I remember when we were first bringing in computers. Uh, 
So I'm tells you something about how old I am. Uh, but the very early days of personal computers, they were adopted by universities as a tool for their students and faculty. And there was some interest in trying to figure out, okay, what's the, how is this affecting education? Are we improving what we're doing with the use of computers? Uh, you know, there's a lot of money involved in putting all this technology in, and you wanted to have some sense that you were getting a good benefit and you understood how this was paying off for you. So, and this, I read a study that was done at a reasonably large university in the eastern part of the United States where they were looking at computers that were used for freshman composition classes. Now, in the U.S. at least, these classes are pretty much universal. Every university or college has freshman composition. It's always required. And the reason is that the faculty at every one of these institutions want to make sure that all students can write papers at at least a minimal level of competency. So at this particular university, they had set up courses using computers. It was still fairly new at the time. And they had set up different, and in large universities, you will often have a, a course that might be taken by a total of two, three, four thousand students, and so they divide them up into sections. The sections are taught by graduate teaching assistants and all of that. But, uh, you know, in these uh, sections, some sections were set up to teach the course using Macintosh computers, and other sections were set up to teach the course using DOS computers that were running WordPerfect. And then they did a comparative study. What is the work product from these two groups? How does it compare? And when they did that comparative study on how these students wrote, something very interesting happened. The DOS WordPerfect group were consistently writing better papers with superior content. Now, this was a surprise. They looked for any possible correlation that might explain it. But the two groups of students seemed to have comparable grades coming out of high school. They had comparable test scores on the standardized tests used for admission. And in general, on all measurements, they could think of the two groups were, in effect, identical, except that one group used Macintosh and the other used DOS computers with WordPerfect. Well, they finally decided the most likely explanation lay in what each platform allowed you to do. Macintosh computers were the first to have graphical user interfaces. And they came with a variety of font tools, graphics tools, and were, you know, in general, the first personal computers with a graphic design capability. You could do page layout with these. You, you could do a lot of good stuff. Uh, that is one reason why Macintosh got such a big head start with all the graphic designers and is still the preferred tool for all graphic designers to this day. They got in there early with all the tools the designers wanted. They've kept developing them, and they have a very loyal audience there for Macintosh computers. DOS computers running WordPerfect were very different. 
and I know because I had one. In the mid to late 80s, they ran on monochrome screens. When you opened up the program, what you got was a black screen with a blinking cursor, and that was it. A few years later, they started to get color monitors for these. Still, DOS with WordPerfect. And at that point, what you got was not a black screen. You got a blue screen that was blank and had a blinking cursor. In other words, the only thing you could do with those computers was write. It didn't really give you any other options. On a Macintosh, though, you were presented right away with font choices, with graphics choices, page layout considerations, etc. The conclusion of the researchers was that having all of these choices available to the students distracted them from the main point, which was to write good compositions. Students using DOS and WordPerfect, no distraction, wrote much better compositions. Now, I don't think this is just applicable to word processing, okay? And another place where I've seen this crop up is with presentation software, like PowerPoint, Impress, what have you. There's a number of these. Most of these presentation programs will try and start you off with a choice among graphical templates and pick the way you want your slides laid out and the colors and the backgrounds and similar distractions and again resist the urge to make a good presentation your first concern should be to logically organize your information when i'm creating a presentation i frequently start with an outline many programs will let you take an outline and turn it into a presentation with a few mouse clicks and then once you've done that you can apply the template that you like to give the presentation the graphic look you want. It's not a big deal. The point is to focus your mind on the main point first. And the main point is usually not what kind of color background I'm going to put on my slide. The main point should be the story that I want to tell in this presentation and getting it logically organized. Now, that's not all about properly using semantic tagging and separating presentation from content. One thing is that it becomes a real time saver. So, coming back to word processing, for instance, suppose you had a long document with a number of sections. Each time you came to a section, you could set the appearance of your section header by clicking on the font you want what size it should be, whether or not it should be indented or numbered or what have you, and so on. You probably find yourself scrolling back through the document and saying, okay, how did I do the last one? It's a pain in the neck. Or you could do it properly by just saying this element is a header 2 or this element is a header 3. And then you can simply set the appearance 
for all of the header 2's in your document or all of the header 3's in your document to be whatever you want. In fact, there are some very powerful techniques for tying them together into, you know, doing numbering and, and all sorts of things, but only if you do the semantic encoding properly. Furthermore, if you need to make a change for whatever reason, you don't need to go page by page through the document looking for all the places that need to be changed. You just change the characteristics of the header style once and then the whole document updates. In that respect, it's an awful lot like the example we used in the previous, uh, the CSS Zen Garden, where you could change the entire appearance of a website by simply swapping one style sheet for another. Very similar idea here. You can change the entire appearance of a document by just making one or two changes to the style declarations. So, for all of the reasons given, proper semantic encoding and separating presentation from content is just as important in Office software applications as it is in building web pages. In fact, I would call it a fundamental principle of good information architecture. So at this point, I just want to remind all of you that uh, Ohio Linux Fest is coming up, and that is coming at the end of September, September 28, 29, and 30. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's going to be wonderful. Um, follow us on the various uh, social media if you want to keep up on all of the news. Uh, we have a Google Plus page. We have a Facebook account. We've got um, Twitter, Identica, LinkedIn, all of these places. Uh, and, and that's really, if you want to get up-to-the-date news, <clears throat> that is the best way to do it. Just follow us on the social media we usually post about once a week some information. Uh, and as we're coming up, I'm, I'm expecting, at the time I'm recording this, which is July 1st, I'm expecting within uh, another week or two we'll probably have registration open. I, you know, <laughs> when this is, it might be the end of July or beginning of August before it actually goes out in the Hacker Public Radio feed. So chances are registration is already open as you're listening to this. Uh, so please go there, take a look. Uh, and, you know, I've got the, some websites in the show notes uh, that I've mentioned here that you can take a look at all of this. And until next time, I'm Ahuka signing off for Hacker Public Radio. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.